Kalal Yan will make you take inventory of the secrets you may be holding. In the Arsena city, we are given a window into the lives of the Nasser family. The secrets that each person clutches weigh heavy on their heads, but it is up to them to either carry it or suffer the repercussions of their confessions. We continue our anniversary celebration in conversation with the brilliant poet and author, Kala Alyan. She speaks to us about how this beautiful family story was birthed from a dream and how important it is to practice your craft. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Jeans Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello everyone. We are so excited. Today we are we are here with amazing writer. I'm so excited because this has been something in the making yes. uh, for for some time and um this was on our wish list and the gods honored us today to be able to speak to the wonderful writer Hala Ayan. Um, she is the author of the novel Salt Houses, but today we are talking about her second book, which is The Arsonist City. This was our book of the month for Yay! March, um, and she is the winner of the Dayton uh, Literary Peace Prize and the Arab American Book Award, and a finalist for the Chautauqua Prize, as well as the forthcoming novel, The Arsonist City, which we are going to talk about today. Um, she has won four award-winning collections of poetry, most recently the 29th year. Her work has been published by The New Yorker, The Academy of American Poets, Lit Hub, The New York Times Book Review, and I guess I'm, I hope I'm saying this right, Guernica. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, where she works as a clinical psychologist. So we're talking to somebody who does all the things. It's smart. Uh, and period and, and the writing is um I, delicious because that was one word that was mm -hmm. in that book that i love to read and this book is definitely delicious so let's talk about what this book is all about yes the arse in the city is a rich family story a personal look at the legacy of war in the middle east and an indelible rendering of how we hold on to the people and places we call home all right. So before we get ready to start talking about the book, we're gonna we're gonna ask a few questions about you. We just want to, you know, get to know uh, you and what it is that you do and who you are. And so our first question is, what came first for you? Was it writing or psychology? And how have you used those two to work for you in both of your professions? Yeah, it's a great question. So writing definitely came first. I've been writing since I learned how to write. Like I've been like writing little I started writing little stories when I was like six or seven or whatever. Um, so I've written my entire life as long as I can remember. Psychology was something that I became interested in my last year of undergrad. I had a friend that was doing an undergrad, uh, like a major in psych. I was actually majoring in political science, 
that I was always like borrowing her books and looking at her notes and asking her to tell me things that she was learning in the classes. Um, and then I decided to just apply for grad school and say, so definitely writing came first. So, it, and I think that it wasn't a coincidence that because I had been writing and reading so voraciously my whole life, that by the time I learned about psych as an off career option, I'm so excited about it because to answer the second part of the question, I think they're really connected. I think both are like, super like both fields or both ways of being in the world involve using storytelling as currency and involve like using narrative as a way of trying to propel motion and like make something happen so you're using narrative to write a book obviously in, in, in writing but you're also using narrative in therapy where you're you know someone comes in and they have like all these disjointed parts of their life story and this is, you know, I'm having this symptom and I can't sleep and I hate my dad and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, you're trying to create some like coherent story out of that, um, that resonates with them, that they can integrate that hopefully sheds some insight into what's happening. So they feel like really, really connected. And I think that psych has helped my writing because it's been, sorry, my, my parents' puppy is here and they, he might bark. Um, okay. And psych has helped my, my writing in that I think training to be a therapist helps you learn how to ask good questions mm -hmm. and also helps you learn to pay attention to certain things in people in terms of like, what would motivate someone to do something? Mm -hmm. How do you walk a decision backwards? Meaning like, how do you go from, let's say someone makes a questionable choice in their life. You immediately start thinking about like, what's their context? What brought them there? As opposed to like immediately shaming them or thinking there's something wrong with them. Um, and I think that sort of empathy is really useful for characters because it means you can make characters that do unlikable things and still find empathy for them and hopefully communicate that on the page. How long have you been a, a psychologist? I mean, I went straight through. So I did like kindergarten through my last day of doctoral program. Like I never took a break. So I, gra I think, graduated 28 or something. Like, um, and I'm 34 now. So, and and also while you're in the doctoral program, you're training and you're you're seeing clients under supervision. So it's been like 10 years or something. Oh wow! Has anyone really recognized you when they come? for services yeah so sometimes I mean in the in the beginning I had just like published one or two books of poetry and I like I love poetry but it's not you know the people that buy poetry are like your mom maybe and like <laughs> other poets um and so th then not so much sometimes people will would have googled me I think frankly I think everybody googles everybody so I think generally people will have googled and then come in and sometimes people would be like I saw this poem that you wrote that was kind of it um in the last few years since Salt Houses, there's been more of like a, people will reach out to me and say, I'm a writer. I know that you're a writer. Um, and, and people will be like, I read your book. I really liked your book. I'm trying to work on this thing. I'm an artist. I'm getting stuck here. And so I've, I've actually kind of started working more and more with writers and artists of color as well. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of your, you said like you, you know, when you were communicating about your characters, like even though they're not really the most loved um, mm -hmm. but you would feel some sort of like still connection or you would really not hate them. Right. We, we have a lot of them in here. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of unlikable. I mean, there's a lot of characters that do unlikable things. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I was, but there is, I didn't really hate anybody. And I'm just like, yeah, I think this is why this book is so good. Hala. So thank you. I just want to preface that. 
that we're going into this love fest about your book in oh. three, two, one. <laughs> oh, God. And also, thank you for making it your book of the month and for all the, like, support and love and posting. I mean, it really has meant a lot to me. Oh, you're very welcome. Like, why not? Like, this is so good. Thank you. Like, look at this. It's so good. Anyway. Oh, are those your notes? Yeah, yes. Both of us were all... Holy moly, that's impressive. We were deep in it. We were deep in this book. That's it amazing. So rich, so delicious. <laughs> um, but one question before we get into your into your book. As you mentioned, you are a poet. And um, we noticed that you and Mahogany Brown know each other very well. She's coming on the show later in, in the month. And so one of the questions that we had was like, we wanted to know, like, how did you all get to know each other? Yeah, I mean, I came to, I love, I love Mahogany. I think that, I think that she is somebody that has created community and cultivated artistic spaces for poets of color, poets from different marginalized backgrounds, and, and just like made spaces that I have had the privilege of like visiting that have felt so incredibly safe, so incredibly warm. I actually met her like a year and a half ago. I haven't known her for very long. I, I went to the Brooklyn slam, like the Brooklyn slam poetry slam that she, um, that she co-runs and co-hosts um, with Jive Poetic in, I'm trying to remember the location, somewhere in Brooklyn. And I went the first, it was like September or October of 2019. And I went and I was just like, I'm just going to do a slam. Why not? I bought it like, I'm just going to do it. Um, and then I just got, kept coming back every month because it was such a, I really like needed it at that moment in my life. Like that sense of just sitting in an audience and like, just feeling that communal spirit. And I've been to so many like co-cultivate, like cultivate, like cultivated poetic spaces, so many open mics and so many of those things. And this is really, I mean, it's, it's one of the more remarkable spaces that's been created. And I think that has a lot to do with, I mean, it's, 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 it's her and Jack. I mean, they've created these really beautiful venues for folks. Um, so yeah. And then we have just like stayed in touch and have like some like impromptu poetry sharing sometimes it's really a beautiful thing that's awesome friendship to have um we had sasha banks who is a poet we had her on um of uh, last week actually and she uh has a has established a relationship with mahogany and she also talked about the community that is slam mm -hmm. and how it helps cultivate you as a writer and be able to have those genuine relationships that help you go further in your writing process. So um, speaking of writing process. So we've talked to authors um, about their writing process um, and it might have changed during the pandemic or not, but at the launch of your uh, book tour, you spoke to Ruman Alam and you, got, you guys talked about the difference between how you write poetry and fiction. Um, has your writing process changed since the beginning of all all of this, you know? Change? I mean, it, it's, I have, I have like a 30 minute a day practice for prose that I've been pretty consistent with throughout the last, I mean, I guess ever since I created it, which was maybe like eight years ago or something. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I was, I was sloppier about it, but I was also kind of giving myself grace and I was like, whatever, I mean, just do it when you can. Um, so I still average out, like I do my 30 minutes a day more often than I don't do it, but 
and and more recently it's been more consistent but that was i would say that the biggest impact that the pandemic had on my writing was that i virtually stopped writing fiction and i started working on nonfiction. and i wrote i wrote actually more poetry during the pandemic than i would in an average year because the way that I, the way that poetry usually works with me is like i'll do like one or two poem a day for a month you know what i mean like during the year i'll just be like for a month i'm gonna write a poem a day or I'll kind of wait until I'm inspired and write a bunch of poems. And then, I, but I don't really like, I don't try to micromanage that sort of writing in the same way that I frankly try to micromanage my fiction writing because it's harder and like you need the discipline and you need to kind of be doing a little bit of it every day or semi-daily. Um, and the pandemic hit and it was really hard to write fiction. Mm -hmm. I think because what was happening in life was so, my theory has been it was, what was happening in life felt so urgent mm -hmm. and it was like so not, it didn't feel possible to look away and like use the imagination. It was like the world was like, nope, you're going to stay in this moment. You're, I felt like very like in the moment, stable to the present um, for better and often for, for worse. Yeah. And so I think that that like that had something to do with the fact that nonfiction felt a little more accessible. Do you do you think that the, the pieces that you've written this past year, is that going to come out into a book? The poetry, yeah. So I have four collections of poetry um, that have been out and, and there will, I mean, I, I think it will at some point. I think, again, poetry, like, I, I like just take my time with it. Like, I'm like, I probably have like 150 poems just floating around right now that like, at some point I need to corral and decide how they fit into a manuscript. Um, but I like, I really like the process of writing poetry more than I like the process of amassing a manuscript I always have and that's been a problem of mine I just don't like editing I don't like I just I don't enjoy that um so I keep being like I'll just write a few more I'm gonna keep writing poetry for a few more months and then I'll work on the manuscript but it hasn't happened yet <laughs> <laughs> the 30 minute a day is some commitment though oh yeah for sure it really you know it's it seems overwhelming in the beginning but then it's like anything what are we doing with our time anyway like what are you doing with any random 30 minute slot of your time of your life for, for for a lot of people and I, this is definitely like a thing of privilege it's like i waste a ton of time on my phone i waste a ton of time doing nothing i waste a ton of time worrying i waste a ton of time like like it's like i'm like you can afford half an hour so i it, it, it has felt manageable for me. I do tell people like I, there are certainly people in the world that are much busier than me that have like many more obligations and responsibilities and, um, and fewer resources than I do. And so what I will say to those folks is like, can you do like five minutes a day? Can you do 10 minutes a day? Because I, th I think there's something about engaging. And when I say five minutes, 30 minutes, like what I tell people is like, it doesn't have to be writing. It could be that you're reading for five minutes a day. Like there's something about just engaging with writing in some way every day that I think keeps you plugged into that, like into that, honestly, that artistic form. And that it kind of keeps like the ideas being generated. Mm. Yeah, because if you don't do it, it won't come. Like if you yeah. don't, if you don't put your mind. Exactly. If you're not, if you're not there and ready, like with a pen, like it doesn't matter how many amazing ideas you have, they will they'll come and go. That happens to me all the time. Like I'll think something and I'll be excited about it. And if I don't like harness it, um, it's, it, it'll go on. Yeah. Practice has to be a ritual when you're doing something, anything, be it riding or skateboarding. If you're not practicing, then what are you doing? <laughs> Nothing. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, it's, it's not, it's like a muscle. It's not, we think that, right. Like, I think we have this idea in our culture that creativity, like 
artists are just sitting around waiting to be like inspired and then they like create masterpieces. It's like, it's like work. It's grunt work. And a lot of it is just like, it's not pretty and it's not, uh, sometimes it's not fun. Um, but it's, it's, it's like working out. If you don't, if you're not constantly engaging in that practice, why would you expect yourself to get better? Yes. Right. right. Note to self. <laughs> I mean, it's for all of us. It's, yeah. I, I like forget this constantly. <laughs> So finally, we're we're diving into this into the book. So, yay! Yay is right. <laughs> so, of course, we always ask, what is the inspiration of the novel, the title, and how did you know the characters came about into that wonderful yet kind of like messy but also lovable story? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I for. I, it was a dream. I had a dream around the time that I was finishing up the Salt Houses, the first novel. I just dream about this woman, and it was like a movie that I was watching, and also I was the woman. It was, very, it was like a dream. I mean, it's, I don't, I'm not going to bore you with the details of it, but essentially it was a Syrian woman who was, you know, wanted to be an actor and wanted to move to Hollywood, and then I kind of dreamt the trajectory of her life and how it didn't work out, and then she got really disappointed and didn't really look like motherhood, and um, and I woke up and I just wrote everything I could remember down and honestly didn't really do anything with it for about a year. And by the time I was like done with Salt Houses, it had been launched. I did all the events. I was like, I think it's time to start working on a longer project and just kept coming back to this woman. Um, and at the same time, I had been writing some shorter fiction around the expat culture in Beirut, which is like very, it's a very specific thing. And I had like, partook in it a fair amount when I was doing my undergrad there and I just kept being like I wonder if there's a way to tie these two things together and then just had the idea of like well if she's the mother one of her kids could be somebody that like however many decades later ends up back in Beirut um and from there the family kind of just like blew like blossomed in my mind and I was like there's a son there's a this there's a that so it was, it was like it felt really like lovely and organic but the dream was definitely the seed give it up to dreams they can help you we out. do we really do i mean they're they're kind of amazing yes this book like you said it has different characters has many characters but for us while reading it we always ask ourselves you know who do you think the main character of this story mm -hmm. is and we really felt like mazda was was it so a lot of the questions that we're going to ask you are probably going to be mazda yeah. mazda related uh, mazda is a mother um, but what you have done so beautifully is allowed the reader to see what her children may not always look for or choose to know. And that mm. is that she is a woman who has who has desires first. Why did you yeah. choose to make this matriarchal figure one whose whole self and experiences are shown throughout this novel? I think that because she I, I think it was a choice that was made because of the character. Like, I, th I think there was no way to tell the story of this character without telling the story of her hunger. Mm -hmm. She is a hungry woman. She is a woman with really big desires and wants. And, and then on the other side of that coin with really big disappointments and resentments and bitterness when those things don't happen. Um, and I don't think like I could have told the story of her without diving into just how much space that desire and that hunger took up in her life, you know, uh, and how much like her, her life in a lot of way, and therefore her mothering, therefore her 
role as a, a partner, therefore her role as you know a friend, a neighbor, or whatever, is really influenced by by the things that she desperately wants and the things that she doesn't get. Mm. You know, I mean, that trickles down into every aspect of her life, which felt important to show, if if for nothing else, to then like like show how the children. I mean, mm. at the point that we start to read the book, they're adult children at that point, but it was it felt important to be like this is how it impacted these children and this is now directly related to how they are in their adulthood like the the middle boy who's sort of a struggling you know artist himself his desires his wants his trying all of that is connected to his mother I mean so it's it's, it was like important I think to show it because it really had this long-lasting intergenerational effect on the the the, the kids that came after her yeah like that's why they said you know like when raising children like um the, like the culture or like what you teach mm-hmm. them also is very important not just like the nature versus nurture kind totally of like totally. Everybody, everybody is made into something because mm-hmm. that's genetics but then yeah. it's what's around them too so yeah totally totally yeah yeah i mean i think there's a lot of like um what's the word they're looking for like I think that you like the way that her children relate to desire and motivation and like their goals is very connected to what they saw in their mother growing up, which is true. I think for, for all of us, not necessarily mothers, but caretakers or siblings or the people that we are raised with. I think we, we get those ideas from the, the, the places that make us. Mm-hmm. So in this novel, the female body is seen as an, in, an integral subject of of the book there are men who seek permission to touch it and those who force themselves to violate the female autonomy there are secrets that the body can hold through infidelities and the lives it chooses to create mm. how close do you want the readers to look into the magnifying glass of these women and their bodies i mean close because i, th- I do think that there's a way that the book gets almost claustrophobic when talking about women's bodies. Like I think there are, there are scenes where like we are so intensely in the body of, of, of different female characters and, and their autonomy, lack thereof, the things that they desire, the things they do to get things that they want, you know, in sort of a transactional way, because they think that's going to work. Um, where I think those scenes reading them, I do think that there, it does feel a little bit claustrophobic and it can feel uncomfortable and like wanting to look away from it, which I think is, I mean, is purposeful because I think that that, that grants us a little bit of a window and insight into what it's like to be those women. You know what I mean? What it's like to be in those bodies for those people in those moments in their lives. Um, So I think it, I think it was important for, for me to really be like, we're going to keep the camera lens yeah. real tight on this experience um, because I think otherwise it would be doing it just a, a, a disservice to the experience of the character. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you'd be able to get the same out of it. I have to give it up to you because uh, there was a point I was telling Denny when I was reading and I got to one point in the story when she's in the car after she left the party with Cal mm-hmm. and, um, and Mazna is in the car and she's like, she's screaming, she's, she's yelling and I feel I had to pull the book back because it. I had to realize, like, wait a minute, this is not a first-person story. And it pulled me all the way in that everything mm-hmm. that happened, it felt as if they were telling you what was happening while it was happening and you were with them while it was happening. It was a lot of, it was very meta how this book was mm-hmm. written. So 
that we thank you yeah i mean i really i'm a big fan of like in general just like as a reader i really like third person that feels like first person like i really i tried to write the third novel that i'm working on i tried to write it in first person about like 150 pages in then i paid my little sister a bunch of money and was like can you just go through it and change everything to third person because i can't do this like i just couldn't i really tried and i was like this is too much I, I, it doesn't the first person is it's it's actually hard for me to read first person books as well um i, I kind of need like a little bit of like a little bit of space but i also like it to feel really intimate so you it's almost like you forget the you forget which you forget which one it is yeah yeah and you you did that you did yes, that you did <laughs> uh war tells you who you are right so um does so does desperate times mean desperate measures did idris marry masna was that out of loyalty to zakaria or uh so somebody can take care of Mazna, or is it because of selfishness? I think it's selfish, <laughs> but it's okay because she does a bunch of selfish things too. Right. I think they're both, they both do really terrible things to each other. That would be, I, I'd want to say unforgivable, but honestly, I don't know. The only thing that makes something unforgivable is if the person doesn't forgive you. And in this case, they decide to stay with each other. So I guess it's not unforgivable. And I think they both do things that are really harmful and toxic to each other. Um, and I think the thing in the end that keeps them together is the fact that they, they've kind of kept the score a little even, mm. you know, in different ways. Um, and also that I think by the end of the book, there's an understanding on both of their parts that the things that were done by the other person were done out of fear and were done out of scarcity mentality and were done out of like just um, really desperation or sadness. You know, like I think, I think Elise marries Mesna because he has wanted Mesna since he saw her, since he first laid eyes on her. And I think he knows it's a Pyrrhic victory. I think he knows when he marries her that she'll never be fully his. And he kind of resigns himself to the fact that he'll sort of have this half-life with her. Um, and she sort of has half-life with him because she's always, you know, half of her is with Zachariah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then how do you sustain, like, a life like that? Like, you know, you live with someone you don't love. Like, how do you, not love completely, but like just in a different level of love? Yeah. How do you I mean, I think you don't under, I don't underestimate like just f familiarity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I think there, there are tons of couples in the world that are, have been together for decades because it's like, it's what you know. And at the, it, you know, there's like those years breed a certain kind of, I think they're family to each other by the end of the book. I think they, they have experienced things that only, they have only experienced with each other and that breeds a certain kind of intimacy. Um, and I think that they've, they've sort of like resigned themselves to their choices a long time ago. Um, by the time we get to the end of the book, they've, they've both kind of like made their choices and made peace for their choices. Um, theirs feels very much like an arranged marriage. Like it has sort of like flavor of an arranged marriage, but with some like more underhandedness. This is a good book for people to read, like just all people, anyone who wants to get married, because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you why, because sometimes mm -hmm. when you, you have people who look at people in relationships, they're looking at them outside in mm -hmm. and not knowing or inside out. I, I'm, I don't know. 
again, my words. I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you following me. But anyway, I, um, they're looking at this marriage and thinking, oh, this looks good. Not oh, knowing yeah. what is on the inside right, 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 be right. rotten. And I think that this does a good way of like showing you that, you know, what you think is not always what it is. And totally. I know, you know, recently last year, we got a little peep into that with the the entire like entanglement thing that happened with Will and Jada and that conversation that happened when it came out, it let people know like, whoa, you know, this thing that we thought was this loving relationship had a whole bunch of mess under it that we had no clue about. And this is exactly what we see when we're, when we're reading this, this novel. So when Mazna um, comes to America and gets to that apartment, it is here when she realizes that Idris doesn't have any money and that their wealth is purely ornamental. Yes. Um, was the illusion of wealth and opportunity the thing that convinced her to see this union through? Mesna, I mean, I think there's like that whole section of like grief makes a person do like unheard of things where it's like, I think Mesna has just had like the biggest shock and loss of her life is completely unmoored and untethered and the wedding proposal comes at the most vulnerable moment possible in her life where she has lost the opportunity to have a certain kind of life. And here comes this person who she has fondness for, you know what I mean? Like knows quite at that point has, you know, has, has become quite attached to in a different way, just not romantically. Mm. And he comes in and he's just like, I can give you this other thing you really wanted, which was the acting and being a star and being on the screens, come with me to California. And of course you go to California. It's like California is like the size of a major country. Yeah. It's huge. And you're not going to be like, you're not like in the middle of Hollywood, like with an agent. Um, and so I think, I think she, I think part of it is that, yeah, I think part of it is that he's a comfortable or what seems like a comfortable and safe choice in terms of like, at least she'll be comfortable and at least she'll be taken care of. But I think more than that, he, he makes it seem like he has more access and that mm-hmm. she by extension and proxy will have more access to, you know, the entertainment industry, to being an artist in the ways that she wants to, than he actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's like, I think it's both. Yeah, when I was reading that, because I won't forget that that grief paragraph, because I'm like, this hurts a lot. Mm. It really, it really hurt me, because I was like, don't, please don't do it. I was just like talking to her, I'm like, please don't I know. do it. Please don't do it. But I know she would, because like, that was so snake-like. I'm like, I'm here as like a representative from your from your true love, and I've right. bamboozled your whole family, used all of them to get into your head. So you can come with me into the unknown. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I mean, again, he's, and he's just like, and and it's one of those things where it's like, you don't know who to feel bad for. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I like where it's like, what he's doing is just signing himself up for a life with someone who doesn't love him Mm -hmm. and who will never love him and will spend his entire life comparing him with the person that she loved who died young. Like when people die young, you canonize them. You turn them into you, you, you turn them into like, you know what I mean? Like they become like all the best versions of themselves and every future you envision for them. It's like so wonderful. It's, a, it's like, they might've turned out to be an asshole. You don't know. I mean, yeah. like, it's, but like when, when people die, we tend to really, a lot of times like sort of glamorize their best traits. And so he is going to be living with, with a ghost for his entire life. And he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny that you say that about the canonization of, of the loved ones, mm-hmm. because there's a point where when 
Masa goes through the the hypnosis and she's having that conversation with Zachariah and it seems like he is presenting a side of her or she's seeing a side of her that she chose to ignore that you know kind of hurts right so it feels like that is that moment where it's like you gotta take me down like I can't be up here anymore yeah 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 I mean I think that's what he's saying because he's just like you can't like I can't keep taking up the space in your life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just not working yeah so So oh go ahead (laughs) you have three you have three kids in this story um Ava is the oldest um and then you have Mimi and and Najla. So one person we're going to talk about a little bit is Mimi. So in our introduction to Mimi in the chapter titled Almost Rockstar, you write that Mimi wonders if Harper, who is the woman that, she, that he is dating at, this, at the time, ever cheated on him, even a little, at one of her release parties and immediately feels terribly sad. It's not the sort of thought he would have had before. He's broken something. He has introduced suspicion. That line. I sat in that line, that sentence for a minute. Um, trust yeah. is so valuable within a relationship. Yes. Not only is it valuable, um, it's also fragile. Yes. So in yeah. this part, were you speaking about how once the suspicion has been introduced and trust is now out of the window, do you feel that these characters must now walk the line of either ignoring the problem and hoping it goes away or telling the, the truth despite the consequences that come from it? It's a hard one because I think like the, one of the things that was so fun about writing this book is that every, like they all have these secrets. There's a lot of secrets in the book and they're all doing different things with those secrets. <laughs> and you see how like, you know, you have a scene where Ava towards the end tells her part, the eldest tells her partner something that she did that mm. you're like, did you have to say that? Like, I don't know. I mean, now you've just, like, caused pain for no reason, you know? And then you see, like, Mimi withholding something that Harper, in my opinion, probably should know and should should have access to that truth and should have access to that information. You see Mesna withholding something that is enormous for the entire book that the, that the kids have to find out on their own that has massive repercussions for themselves, their identities, their, 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 their placement in the world. Um... So it's, I think, to speak to particularly this issue of, like, introducing suspicion, I mean, I think, like, and, and sort of, you know, once trust has been broken, what do you do with it? I mean, I think it's, I think it's really threading the needle between people have access, people have a right to their secrets, and people have a right to the truth. Mm. And 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 I've, I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, it's like, you can't have both, mm. and yet somehow you need to find a way to honor both. Yes. I think it's a little bit of yes. like the do like do a, do the least amount of harm yes. as you can. You yes. know what I mean? Like, um, and it's like figuring out which of those two things does the least amount of harm, not to your ego, not to you getting in trouble, but like to everybody that's involved, mm-hmm. right? Because nobody wants to tell. I mean, if you've done something shitty to someone, of course you don't want to tell them because right. you don't want to get consequences. You don't want someone to be mad at you. You don't want someone to break up with you. You don't, you know. But it's like, how can you thread the needle of like? I, I, I have the right to, you know, have my experiences and also people have the right to know if something impacts them directly, what is going to cause the least amount of harm here. And it's hard because it means you're, 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 this is why it's better to just not do those things because otherwise you end up, I think, in the worst position of all, which is you have to be the judge, jury, and executioner of a decision that is like way too big for one person. Yeah. You have to make choices on behalf of yourself and the other person. I don't want that. That sounds horrible. 
that alone feels like a deterrent yeah. from doing things yeah. that are you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah because you know like when Maz like Mazna carried a secret yeah. throughout her adult life and like you said that it has implications to like the children because you would have to know like who am i like i've been living a lie like this is this is not really who like i'm supposed to be are these really like the people that i'm supposed to be with Exactly. And like, who do I need to know? Like, who else do I need to know? Like, what what else do I need to do in my life for me to be like a valid like daughter of somebody? Exactly. So, and mother, because yes, the, the yes. implications are also like, then what does that mean for your children? What does exactly. that mean for their identity? What does that mean? Yeah. It's it's a whole lot of like digging, and it's a whole lot of hurt that would come out from all of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, I'd rather be Ava than Mesna in that situation. Me because too. Mesna, because what has that done to Mesna? Those decades of holding, I mean, you like mistruth, it hurts the holder of that mistruth more than it hurts the person being withheld. Mm-hmm. And I know it doesn't seem that way in the beginning or at least short, in the short term, but that shit will like destroy you from the inside. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, I don't envy any of the characters that are holding secrets in this book. No. Us either. Not any of those secrets. Nobody's secrets. Yeah, I don't want any of those. No, thank you. (laughs) I'll just word vomit the truth every chance I get. So because of these secrets, Mazna and Idris have this weird relationship. I don't know Mm. how else to describe it in my own, you know, in my own. Yeah. Um. But do you think because of these re- this relationship that they've established, is that the direct link to the strange relationship, not just with their children, but to the siblings, to each other? I think so. I mean, I think that they're, they have been modeled a certain tense, non-transparent tit-for-tat, like, bitter dynamic for their entire lives. Like, that's been the model of their... I mean, again, it's like, anytime you're growing up in a household or with caretakers or with a frame, whatever that frame is, it's going to be something that you then carry with you for the rest of your life, right? So if you grow up with, like, love and affirmation and whatever, you're going to enter the world assuming that it will give you that, and you will be giving the world that, right? Um, It's not to say that people who don't can never foster that or develop that. They can. It just takes more work. And I think that these are, I mean, these are kids that grow up in an environment of lying and secrecy and people and a lot of like gossip, gossip, a lot of like, I'm going to tell you one thing, but swear you won't tell your sister. I'm going to tell you one thing, but swear you won't tell your mama. Like, you know what I mean? And again, I do think, I mean, as a someone that grew up in an immigrant household with a lot of immigrant friends, like, I do think that's like par for the core of a lot of like, I mean, at least culturally, it felt very like resonant with me culturally. Um, I definitely grew up in a house where there was a lot of like, I'm the you spray, don't tell anyone. And I'm like, okay, tell me, tell me all the things, tell me all the things. And then like, you go, and then like the second they're done telling you, you pick up the phone, you're like, I have to tell you something, spray, you're not going to tell anyone. Like, like, I definitely grew up in that environment. <laughs> um, but, I th- but I think there's a way that the Nasib household has that, but with like, like in, in my family, there's the potential for that to do harm, but because there's enough like love and goodwill, it's often like buffered. Mm-hmm. 
in there in that in the books um in the character's household i think it's there's underneath it because there's so much resentment and bitterness between the parents there's an edge to it mm. you know so what what it feels like more than anything is actually an attempt to be controlling mm. it's to try to control every like mesma is constantly trying to puppeteer her her kids yes. and make things happen the way they need to happen but again think about empathy it's like why because nothing in her life has gone the way that she wants it to go so the one thing she can do is try to control her children mm. But 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 why are we like that though, immigrant child, right here? But why can't we communicate to each other? Why are we like this? I think, I think that I think that people people come. I mean, I'll speak from my experience. It's like I think people flee situations that are really traumatic and have to come and start all the way over and like learn new languages, learn new systems, learn new ways of norms, new ways of being in the world, watch your children kind of become half strangers as they like pick up all these like mannerisms and whatever is from like a totally foreign, you know, culture. I think that people are tired. And I think people are like, what the fuck do you want me to talk about my feelings? I'm trying working four jobs to get you fed. Yeah. Like, I don't like, does it matter how I feel? Is that going to change anything? Is that going to make my paycheck bigger? Like, like I think that there is a certain, especially for, in my experience, like the, the generation that comes, I mean, there's just, there's a pragmatism and the like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean what I feel? I'm trying to survive. And then the generation that comes after is like, oh my God, I need to process. I need to make sense of the world. I need to keep a dream journal. I need to like, you know what I mean? <laughs> such a luxury it's such a privilege right because we're like we have the time and the space to do all of that but we have the time and space to do that because someone broke their back to get us that time and space like someone someone worked like the skin off their hands to give us that time and space and then we're like oh my mom doesn't communicate it's actually really terribly ungrateful <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen hala alian just read my diary um when i was growing up so here you go <laughs> sisters would like talk about you know the little things that my parents had did to us when we were younger and at some point my dad would just have was just like well I kind of don't remember all of that but I guess if I hurt your feelings I guess I'm sorry and we just <laughs> laughed because it was like you know the most he's not even sure what he did he doesn't remember he doesn't, he doesn't yeah, even know, doesn't know. It doesn't he's exist. like whatever it is I apologize. Can we move on? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's, look, I think, I think it's really hard to process when you're too busy surviving. Mm -hmm. I, I think the idea of processing or making sense of or making meaning of it's, it, it, it happens after you've survived the thing. Think about anything traumatic you've been through, right? It's like you, while you were experiencing the trauma, you weren't like, how do I feel about that? Like you are just existing and you're getting from minute to minute to minute. And then a year later or, month later, or however long later, you start to tell a story about it to yourself, right? Or you, you know, work through it or whatever. It's really, and I think some, you know, I think a lot of times immigrants, like it's like, especially like people that are asylum seekers or refugees from like, you know, conflict or whatever, you're not, 
you're just getting through the years. Yeah. You know, it's like really unromantic. And then the generation that comes after can write these romanticized versions of it and like, you know, kind of have like write the story and write the whatever. But it's like we were given the, I don't know, we were we were given the mental because it's not just time and resources literally it's also like mental resources like the being able to have this the the real estate in your mind to sit down and like have an imagination and like think about these things and you know it's like something you're you're given because of the labor of those that came before you mm. that's weird that weighs a lot though yeah it weighs a lot it's also really hard because it's hard to think about where accountability comes because that doesn't isn't to say that the folks that came before you couldn't have also caused harm. It's like dialectically both are true. It's like they could have caused a lot of harm and also that was the best they could do. Yes. You know what I mean? And it's like those two things like kind of exist in the same space. Ah, oh, this is why I love this book. So in the book you have where uh, Idris's father has passed away. And so he's decided that he's going to sell the home and they have to go back. And then while they're there, they're, they're going to do a memorial. Um, yes. So in the book, when the family returns um, during the planning, the housekeeper, Mary tells Nash, the youngest child that her parents are really, really are Americans now, aren't they? <laughs> How important is it to hold on to culture and traditions, especially during times where one may find themselves needing to return to them? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think that I think the people that I have found to be the most well-adjusted in life, especially thinking about like people that occupy third culture spaces or people that are like, you know, born and or raised and or live in, or even just inhabit two cultures simultaneously. I um, mean, if it's not going back and forth between different parts of the world, I think that the folks that have seen the most, like the people that I envy, the people that I'm like, oh, you really got this together, are the ones that are not afraid to discard what doesn't serve them and adopt what does, regardless of what the origin of it is. You know, so, and by that, I mean, it's like the, the people who have developed a hodgepodge, so to speak, of like, coping strategies and and mourning rituals and grieving rituals and gratitude practices that come from different things they've like different things that they've that have crossed their paths across their lifetime without being too rigid about like wait does this fit into the thing that i was raised to believe no okay no thank you you know or like this is this actually can i trace this root you know can i trace this back to does it have its roots in this particular village in this particular country that three thousand miles away no okay i don't want it um, that I think those, those are the folks that I think seem to, I don't know, just like get through life with more ease. So I think, that I, and also I think that like, I also think that the continuation of our ancestors traditions and our ancestors rituals is really important too. So it's like, it's like, I'm, I'm a fan of the, like, take whatever works, whatever works for you, Godspeed, you know? So it's like, like I, I, myself, it's like, I practice the elements of things that I definitely have been passed down to me. And then there's things where I'm like, I don't know, I had a conversation with a person in a bar 10 years ago, and they shared this thing that they do, that's like a way that they, you know, and get in touch with gratitude in their life. And I like that. And now I do that thing too. So, so it's like, I think there's some, some combination, like life is not easy. Spoiler alert. I say that it's a headline, like I'm teaching you something. I'm like, listen, gather around. Life is not easy. It's like, life is not easy. Like 
whatever you need to do to get through the days and and not and that makes it sound really defeated like just sludge through those days one day after the other it's like whatever you need to do to get through the days and like infuse them with whatever like element of joy or gratitude or connection and kinship that you can whatever gets you there gets you there Mm. like it kind of doesn't matter what the origin is it's not like we're all like you know groups that are from different alien planets like at the end of the day we share more than we don't Mm, and the things we don't share we've done onto ourselves (laughs) you know what i mean like they're like things that we've done ourselves so it's so i think that like it's like whatever practice gets you where you need to go just take it amen to that yes (laughs) so um also spoiler alert um there is war in you know in the book So the war is a timestamp in the story. It has influenced decisions that have changed the characters' lives. It also serves as a background character in the novel. Um, Where in the Western world, when talking about Lebanon and Syria, the war is the main character. How necessary was it to show that people are having life experiences outside and alongside the war? I think it's really important because I think that uh, if you don't have a familiarity with parts of the world that have like really intimate, I mean, the, the U.S. has a really sanitized relationship with war in that it goes and creates them, but on other people's soil, and you kind of don't see it here. You know what I mean? Like, yes. been, it's been a minute since there's yeah. been a war on U.S. soil, um, and I and I think that, and you know. That's like, hopefully that continues. I don't want there to be war anywhere. But it's like, it's, I, I think that that means that there is a different relationship to, to understanding what the implications are of living under constant turmoil or, or conflict or whatever, than somebody that like grew up in like Lebanon civil war and was like, you know, five when, when it started or whatever. It just means that you're going to have a different understanding of, of how at the end of the day, human life and like, like living persists you know like living like the the act of living and existing as long as you have that privilege or whatever like you're most of the time people will continue doing it regardless of what their circumstances are um and I think it just felt really important to 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 I don't know to really like show that that like to the people that were in the people that I know that were in Lebanon during those 15 years of civil war or parts of them they were also like falling in love and like fighting with their parents and like losing jobs and getting jobs and like having dreams and having fantasy, like they were also living. And there was this thing that was happening that definitely was, was it coloring every part of their, of their experience? Absolutely. The same way that I would say in the U S capitalism colors every part of our experience, right? Like it's like, it's, it's, it, it, it does something to you to live in a certain, it's like, what is water to a fish? Like, yeah, what is water to a fish? It's like, we all have different versions of water. Every country has a different version of water. Um, but I think it's, but, but I think when you're looking at it from the outside in, it's very easy to, to reduce those places to headlines. Not a not a question, just a comment. Your your book, um, along with uh, reading Lolita in Tehran, those two books for me have never. I've never read anything that made me say, "Oh, I want to go to this place." But really? reading these books made me be like, "What? Well, I need to get a passport. I need to go and visit these places." Have to you have to, and I think it's. I- 
it's because like you know mainly like you're saying like we get this this sanitized look of what war is in america especially when you're talking about other countries in the media where that is only the thing that you hear talked about and you never get this picture of wait a minute this is a whole like metropolis where people are living and thriving and yeah. so yeah yeah thank you for yeah. that because it I really mean, people opens were up. dancing people were dancing in Beirut in 1978, right. like there were there were weekends where people went to parties and dance. Like it's like it's not, and again, that's not. To, it's it's hard because they're, you know, I think there is this way in which writer people who are writing about certain experiences or trying to capture them get on the defensive and have to like humanize their the, the country and be like, no, there's color here too, there's joy here too, there's song here too, and even that like I bristle at because I'm like. That's also that. That also feels like a setup. You know what I mean. Even that kind of feels like I'm like still like I'm 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 like being puppeteered in a way. Like that also feels like I'm 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 performing in the way that I'm in a way that is being asked of me. Like or like in a way that like I feel like I'm I'm following a script mm. when I'm like you don't understand. Beirut's amazing. You have to go. The people are the best. They're so you know what I mean. Uh, and I'm not imagining if I was like, they're not, they're terrible. <laughs> no, they're amazing. They are hospitable. <laughs> Don't go. No, they are amazing. They are hospitable. I do love that part of the world, but there's a way in which I, you have to be careful. I think sometimes belonging to certain identities because I do think there's pressure on us to overperform and overcompensate to be like, we're human too. If you cut me, I'd bleed. If you whatever, like, let me show you my joy. I feel good. It's like, it's, it's again, it's like kind of walking that line of being like, I don't know. It's like try, It's like telling the truth, and then also being mindful of the fact that the truth is going to be really convenient for some people and really inconvenient for some people. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't. I, I don't know if I'm like explaining it correctly, but there's something about the way that, like, I don't know. I don't. I. I. I don't want to feel like I'm like a glorified, and I feel myself doing it sometimes, where I'm like, I feel like I'm just like. I don't know how to phrase it. Like, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be like a, a glorified like spokesperson mm -hmm. for something, you know. Um, and I think there's a way in which this country, like a lot of countries that are like white and Western, predominantly asks for those spokespeople to be really palatable and to be the ones that like don't have accents and that have passports and are like presented and kind of like. You can come on and you can be like, yeah, do the talk and walk the talk and walk the talk. You can walk the talk and talk the walk and do all the things. But like, yeah. there's, there's like, there's, a, I'm just very, I'm hyper-conscious of that, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm aware of that. Like, in this space, it doesn't feel like that because it's like, you're both like folks of color. But I think there is something it's something I'm mindful of when I'm talking about this in different in different spaces. I think that comes with like knowing your audience, like mm. and knowing your audience, but also knowing who you want to talk to in your audience, right? Yeah. Like I'm yes. talking to y'all. Y'all know what I'm saying. Like I don't need That's to do all it. the extra stuff. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, you're. So I've heard a bunch of people be like, "I want to go to Lebanon," and I'm like, to you, I would say. If you're gonna go to Lebanon, tell me, and I will try to go at the same time as you're going, so I can show you places because we'd have an amazing time. Yes, right. That's yeah, a different, that's like that's a different thing than being like, yes, you should though. It's lovely, you know. What I mean? like, <laughs> like it's like it's like a different. There's just like a different. I don't know. It's yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, I understand that because sometimes, most of the time, not sometimes, most of the yeah. times, that I try to just do 
me or my job, I would have to do that. Mm. It has you have you have to be, um, you have you have to be something that they can accept, so they can accept what you're saying to them. Because if you're if you are too out there, then it's inconvenient. But if you're also too like timid, it's inconvenient. Exactly. Basically, it's what's convenient for them, I guess. Yeah, there's some like in between of like you're different enough but similar enough, and like I can like access you and read you in a way that's quick to me, and so I don't have to be like yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a lot. It it, it can feel like um, there's definitely a performance element to it that I'm like aware of, like a charade. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Who's the real villain in this story? They're, they're <laughs> just me. I love how y'all are just like, who are the bad people? <laughs> no. I don't know who the bad people are. That's so funny. I don't think there is one. I mean, I think, look, I... And I'm all about a villain. I'm all about a good villain. I think the villain is, like, just tragedy. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's like kind of just like, it's like these people, like, this really essential character dies in a horrible act of violence because of like war and sectarian violence and all of these things. And like, I mean, we can walk back back and be like occupiers and like colonial forces are the villain because they set things up that then led to the war. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, we could go way back, but I think in terms of the actual characters, like on the page, it's like, I think they're all sort of the victims of their circumstances and the victims of like this con like, you know what I mean? Like they're victims of these like larger sociopolitical things that happen that make them make bad choices. And then they throw good money after bad money because they're like, I've already started making bad choices. I'm just going to keep making bad choice. Um, They all operate. And I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. They all operate within a scarcity mentality which I do think is common. A lot of times when we talk about like certain identity markers or immigrant communities or whatever, this like not enoughness and they're all operating from a place of not enoughness, mm. which makes sense because especially for Mazda and Idris, there was not enough. They didn't make that up. That was true. Um, but, they, but even after that stops being true, they keep operating within that scarcity mode. And I think that only just like robs them more and more of any sort of like real joy or connection. Um, so I think my answer would be they're all villains or none of them are villains because they all do villainous things. I have an opinion. <laughs> Tell me who the villain is. I feel like Sada is the villain, and I'm gonna tell you why. Because if <laughs> she did yeah, not, yeah, I was like, what? What? So, so people who are who have not read this story, like this is a good time to pause this podcast, just fast forward a few seconds. But this is who I think and why I think it is Sada. Because if she did not get up in the middle of the night and follow behind Masna to go see where she was going, she would not have gone and told her brother what had happened. And then Zachariah would not have never gone back at that moment. They could have been off living in Paris like they had dreamed. But no. I can see that. I can see. But also, Sarah's a kid and it was her brother. She's still, you know, I was telling Denny, like, this kind of remind me of uh, Romeo and Juliet, where I really feel like the villain in that story is the messenger because he does not get the message to where it needs to go. <laughs> and then they kill themselves. <laughs> so, you know, it's just always you have one job. I like, I like how to you, I like how to you villains are like male people. <laughs> they're like the people who like get things to other places. You're like, they're the real bad guys here. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
the postal service. <laughs> see, I can definitely see how Sarah's choice to do that is the instigating act that creates everything that happens. Yeah, yeah it totally. lit the fire. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, she did yeah. it. She did that. She did. <laughs> I just wanted to say, you know. That's so funny. <laughs> so now, like, fast forward in this little story. How are they now doing? How are the Nassers doing? Are they in therapy? God <laughs> God willing, somebody is in therapy. Because they... I think, you know who I think is doing the best? I think Najla is. Yes! I think Najla's in the corner. I think she really, she had some rude awakenings. And I think she took them in. You know, this is like also her. a book of a lot of moments where characters have rude awakenings and learn nothing, which yeah. is really, that should be really hard to write those characters where you're like, how are you still, how did you get nothing from this? But she, I think, like, has some really painful moments towards the end of the book um, with Fee and with everything that happens. And I think she ends the book having learned some shit. Mm -hmm. And I think she's continued on that path. I, I feel like she's maybe in LA right now and she's like working on a solo album and she's like, and she's, she's maybe like, I don't know, seeing a Reiki healer. Like, I, I feel like she's like doing the work she's, she's putting in, she's putting in the work. Um, I don't know about Ava. I, I think of Ava and I'm like, I don't know if she and her partner end up staying together. I think Mimi and Harper work it out though. I think like, I do. And I, and I, I don't know. I still think Mimi doesn't deserve Harper. And I yes. think, yeah, I don't think Mimi deserves Harper. But I think that he also didn't deserve Harper for most of the, most of their relationship because he was so preoccupied with his unhappiness. He was so narcissistically preoccupied with like how he wasn't making it and he wasn't the star that he wanted to be. It wasn't whatever. And by the end of the book, we see him relinquish that dream. Mm. So I think now there's space for him to actually have like there's now mental real estate that can be taken up with something that he's like actually not terrible or like yeah. better at, um, like cooking or being around being in a restaurant, or whatever. And so I think, and I also think he had a near miss with Harper. He almost lost Harper. Mm. And I think sometimes you need that shit to wake you up. So yeah. I, I feel like he, I feel like he's woken up a bit. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Mesnet and Idris bless them. Who knows? Who can say? <laughs> <laughs> They're still like arguing about like with what Idris eats. And yeah. she's like, oh, you're going to have another heart attack. And he's like, I wish I would so I could die and be done with you. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was this little question from, um, as you see, that's Jacqueline. She, she's one of our, um, our readers and she's present here. And, and she was, uh, she, she was asking earlier, like the music of like, you know, um, Noja or like that mm. part of it, like, were you in a band? Like the music aspect of it. No, I've always wanted to be. I mean, this was like a book where, so for Salt Houses, because it was, it's funny, we were just talking about this, about the, which generation gets to do the things they want to do. So for Salt Houses, there were, they were the generations that were getting, being forced to leave places, right? So it was like the generation that's leave Palestine. A decade or two, no, a couple of decades later, Saddam invades. That generation has to leave and start over. So the family kept like leaving and starting over. Um, and because of that, the jobs and the careers that they had were pretty nondescript. They, they had to be really practical and really aligned with what would be realistic in that day and age for like Palestinians that ended up in Kuwait. They were going to choose stable jobs because they had just experienced all this displacement. Um, so this was the first book where I was like, I'm going to give them all, all the jobs that I want. One of them is going to work in a greenhouse. I've always found greenhouses to be amazing. One of them is going to be a microbiologist because I find that so fascinating. One of them is going to work in a restaurant because I love the idea, like I like writing about food. Um, and then Nejla, I just, I was like, I want them to be, I want there to be music and musicians. I've always wished I was in a band. I have a terrible voice. 
it just won't happen. I also play no instruments. <laughs> I literally bring nothing to the table when it comes to like being in the band. But it's but it's always been like um of an artistic form that's really like grabbed my fancy. Like I feel like there's it just feels so fertile to be able to both write and then like express it in a way that's musical feels like oh, all of the things. Another part to Jacqueline's question, she wants to know, like, uh, do you incorporate music when you're writing? What are you listening to? Things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, there was, there was, there was a fair amount of, like, listening to, I mean, this is one of those questions, like, with philosophy, what I read. I'm like, I've never read a book. I forget everything. My mind goes blank. I will say, like, the, the band Mishro Leila um, is a band that's based in, they, they started in Lebanon. Um, and their sound was sort of the sound, like, maybe with a little bit more of a punk edge to it, but, like, that was sort of what I was envisioning something along those lines when I was thinking about Noja, um, and so that was something that I would, like, listen to when I was, like, writing those scenes. Okay, so now we're at the part of our time together where we ask you the really hard-hitting questions. Bring it on. First question is, we want to know... Who are your biggest influences in writing? I would say Jhumpa Lahiri always is like, I think the person that like, yeah, has had a tremendous amount of influence. Um, Amy Tan, I read the Joy Luck Club way too young, like younger than I should have read the book. It was just like, oh my God, I love this book. You can do this. Uh, and I was like, I don't know, six? No, it wasn't six. But I was like too young for, for, for that. I think I was like 10 or something. And then, and then I think more recently, it's been folks like Natalie Diaz, like poets like Natalie Diaz, Ada Limone, um, honestly, Mo, like Mahogany Brown, um, like being exposed more to like folks that are not contemporary because I think they're like better if they're I still think they're in a league above me, but like I have their email addresses. I have shaken their hand. You know what I mean? You know, when you're like, you're like, I've kind of like Tina Chang. Like, okay, I've like, I've sort of like, I think I'm kind of in this world a little bit, um, but I still have imposter syndrome. Like, I think those are the folks that seeing like women of color tell their, tell the truth about things that it would be a lot easier not to tell the truth about is like, that is my kryptonite. Like that is the thing that gets me every time and is renews my lease, so to speak, on like I want to do this thing. I want to I want to keep writing, I want to keep writing, I want to keep writing. Is like having models of those of those writers who are like not that much older, but like a little bit like either like a generation above me or like a little bit older or whatever, where I I I find those to be like really like kind of mentors. Um just in terms of like what how, what the impact that their words have had on me. Mm. All yeah. right. Yeah, I, I I grew up with the same aunties. I read the joke. Yes, aunties. Auntie. I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's like aunties. But they're like, it's like, but they're not like that much old, but it's, yeah, it's like still like big sis types um, or big sibling types. And it's like, again, I don't think any of them know any of this, but that's. That's all right. <laughs> they're like, who's Hannah? <laughs> oh, I'm sure they know you by now. They've seen you go <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> So you, you've touched on some books and some influences, but um, this is really brutal. The top five maybe books or recommendations that you're that you are in I mean, love again, you're gonna I'm not, you're just gonna make me seem like someone who's never read a book because I'm not gonna remember anything. And then we're <laughs> awkwardly at each other be so embarrassing. So get ready for that, everybody. 
Um, I would say, okay, so I can think of a couple that are like off top of my head. So one is Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri was like, it changed my world because I did not know you could create such a universe in a short story before I read that book. Um, Etel Adnan's Time, poetry collection, majorly recommend it. Um, what are books that have like really shaped me? I can't, it's like, no, I'm not going to remember anything. I guess the Joy Love Club, um, post-colonial love poem. I, I'll, I'll say like things recently that I've read. Um, Such a Fun Age. Yeah. Amazing. That was our October pick. Oh my God, it was so good. Yes. I have never read a child character that was that developed. Right. Yes, yes. I've never read a child character, like the toddler. I've never read a child character where I'm like, that's exactly what they sound like. But I, I don't, I have a question. But I like, just like the, the way that it was like, I was like, my God. Um, and then I recently read The Vanishing Half, which was amazing. Um, I'm now I'm just, I'm just now spewing things that I've read recently. Spew I don't away. think this is the case. Huh? <laughs> Spew away. Yeah, I was like, here are things I've read in the last year that I like. I really liked How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Mm. I found that to be, re have you read it? No, not yet. Not yet. You should. It's really, it, it was, it was very like, um, transformative. Um, ooh, in the dream house. Who's that by? Had a few months months ago. Is that the one with the cover is like Carmen, and Carmen, orange? Carmen. One second. Let me find it for you. It's I actually need to because I hate when people like reference people and they're like I don't know look them up. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen Maria Machado. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um. And then I think, I mean, I, I think my favorite poet, I think in the world, am I ready to say this? It's a tie between a bunch of people. You're like, relax. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like, it's a probably like a, a mixture of like Tina Chang, Natalie Diaz. I was going to say Ada Limone, but I like, I really, really, really love the carrying. Um, and I have like had like a bunch of fertility struggles this past year. And I like have reread that book a couple of times this year. And, and she talks a lot about trying to get pregnant and then ultimately not working. And that, and there is like such a steadiness to it and such a groundedness to it um, in how she turns in the moments of pain or desperation or despair or emptiness or whatever turns towards nature and like looks at the fecundity and the fertility of nature and like, rather than that ever causing pain it's only solace to her and that's like such a beautiful reminder that's like the world is full regardless you know um yeah so those are some books that i've enjoyed i feel like i veered way off track oh no you're no. good if you're off track you're with us so yes we we go <laughs> tandems 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 <laughs> um i want to know what's next for you what's what's coming what do you want to come so i have um, I have a nonfiction book that wow. is in the works that is, I mean, I've been describing it as like a cultural memoir on the topic of erasure mm -hmm. and sort of like thinking about how erasure is often something that happens from the outside in. And we think about it like through like colonialism and oppression and like anglicizing names and whatever. But then it's also something I think that people who are used to it coming from the outside in inflict upon themselves so like we erase ourselves like folks erase themselves through things like addiction and eating disorders and codependency and like different relational issues and whatever um so it's kind of writing about those themes through 
personal essay ish kind of. I don't know how it's going to be formatted, but that's kind. Of, those are sort of like the that's kind of the elevator pitch of it. Mm. Um, and then I have a novel that I, the the one I abandoned at the beginning of COVID that I'm like slowly returning to now. That is about a woman who is returning to Savannah, Georgia, after ten years of being away, um, and she had left after her college roommate was murdered. So she's a uh, an Arab woman whose white college roommate was murdered um, their senior year, and she like got out of Savannah and then has to return. Like there are circumstances that make her go back home, and she kind of gets sucked into figuring out what happened to her roommate all those years ago. Ooh, if you so it's a real sharp left turn. I mean, it's like so different than any. That was the one that I tried to write first first, and then I was like. Marianne, that's my sister's name. Like, James isn't the third one. I can't do this right So, <laughs> so it's like, I thought that was the one I like tried to get really like, we're going to keep it real intimate. But I was like, I don't think I can, I just don't think I know how to write first person. Um, but yeah, so that one is, it, it's very different than anything I've written. And I have not looked at it in a year. And I'm like, I've printed it out and I'm so nervous. And it's just like mocking me every day. And I need to like open it up and get back to it. Well, if you open it back up and you finish it and you need somebody to read it, like, we'll be here. Oh, my. I will. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> yes. For like, sure. you are welcome to come back here and talk to us and share all the things. You know, if you just want to talk about poems, anything. I would love it. Yeah. This yeah. is amazing. I Thank know. you so much for coming. You are amazing. This is an amazing oh book. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. This is a preservation of culture, like Fee said. This is thank you so much. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, I have to just really to thank both of you for everything you've done to like promote the book and like just all the love and support behind it. It really, really means the world to me. Anytime, yeah. anytime for you. Anytime. Yes, thank you so much, Hala. This is great. These are these are these all are the gonna notes. stay with all stay the with notes. Us. Yes, yes, all the notes. <laughs> So on that note, we all are going to um, bid you adieu. Thank you again Perfect. for um, coming you. on the show. Thank you all so right. much, Hala. Good night. Bye. Enjoy your night. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.